Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. First <clears throat> Samuel 28. <clears throat> In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium in Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Saul, Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned his away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the land of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had 
eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I thank you that you have given us guidance in our day through your written word and by the guiding spirit who enlightens us as we read it. And I ask now that you would use this time that we have together to feed us spiritual truth that we need to hear today. And I pray that you would bless Michael, your teacher now, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, Christ Church. It's always a pleasure to be able to open God's Word with you even in a difficult passage like this. Uh, When I say difficult, I mean it's hard to understand exactly what's happening in this passage. Most of us are probably not super familiar with the dark arts of witchcraft and necromancy, uh, but also when we do understand what's going on, it's very dark, it's heavy, it's sad, it seems hopeless. And yet, this is God's gift to us, from a good God who loves us, who wants us to know Him, and is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The light of the gospel will shine bright against the dark backdrop of 1 Samuel 28, but first we need to wade through the darkness together. So we see the once great King Samuel at the end of his life in such a state of fear and despair that he's willing to go directly against God's command, and commit what God calls an abomination. If you remember back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, the prophet Samuel then is still alive, and he's rebuking Saul because Saul didn't listen to the word of the Lord. And in his rebuke, he says something really interesting for us today. He says in 1 Samuel 15 verse 23, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. He's comparing rebellion with divination, this seeking after psychics and witches and and sorcery. This is interesting for us because for many of us, we're probably not tempted to divination or to dabbling in the occult. So what relevance does this passage have for us today? Well, we see in the fruit of Saul's sin, 
what we find in the root of sin in our own hearts, that is, rebellion against God. So as we work through this passage, we get a glimpse into the trajectory of where a heart of rebellion against God will lead us without true repentance. And for Saul, it's led him to death's doorstep. And I was, as I was thinking about this this week, it reminded me of the classic Charles Dickens story, uh, A Christmas Carol with Ebenezer Scrooge. But since I'm a man of refined tastes, I don't think of the book, I think of the Disney movie with uh, Scrooge McDuck. And if you don't remember, it's the story with this terrible old curmudgeonly guy or duck who is visited by this series of three ghosts, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. These ghosts are giving Scrooge an inside look into the trajectory of his life. And it takes him all the way to the end where he's in a graveyard, and he sees two grave diggers who are digging a grave and joking together about how the person whose grave they're digging, nobody came to their funeral. And Scrooge, to his horror, sees that it's his grave. And it causes him to say this, tell me that these events can yet be changed. What does that have to do with our passage today other than the ghost connection? Well, if you're here and you see yourself in any way in Saul's shoes, I want you to know that these events can yet be changed. We're seeing in Saul's life what Pastor Eugene Peterson calls the cumulative effects of a long disobedience in the same direction. Saul has been hardening his heart over and over to God by not listening to him and rebelling. And yet, if you're here today, it is not too late. It is never too late to repent to turn from sin, to cling to Christ as he's freely offered in the gospel. My hope today is that God's word would provide those of us who need to hear it a wake-up call from the further hardening of our hearts, but also that we would see the patient, faithful, kind love of Jesus on full display in the gospel in contrast to the dark backdrop that this passage presents. So we're going, to walk, we're going to walk through this passage in four scenes. A deafening silence, a last-ditch effort, a death sentence, and a dying king's last meal. So first, a deafening silence. This passage comes in the middle of the chapters that Andrew preached on last week, where Saul is in the midst of the Philistines. It's put here to show Saul and David going through similar circumstances but with different results. We're reminded in, chap- in uh, verse 3 that the prophet Samuel has died. We found that out back in chapter 25, but we're told again that Samuel has died, and then we find out that Saul has put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. That's a good thing. We don't know why Saul did it, but it's a good thing because it's directly forbidden by God. Uh, Just a little context of where God has talked about mediums and necromancers. Uh, In the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 31, it says this, Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out. Or so make yourself unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. In the next chapter, Leviticus 20, it says this, 
If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut them off from among his people. A few verses later, it says, a man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones, their blood shall be upon them. And then in Deuteronomy 18, we read a little bit of it in our silent meditation today. Starting in verse 9, it says this, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations who you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So that's our context. Very explicitly forbidden by God not to consult psychics, mediums, people who try to talk to the dead. I want to say a little bit about that before we move on. Uh, where do we see this in our world today? Well, we do see in our culture, psychics are present. Uh, fortune tellers becoming more and more popular these days is tarot card reading, palm readers. We even see it in Ouija boards. These things happen in our day still today. They may feel far off, and in many ways, we are far off from the culture that this text was written to, but there is some overlap. And when God calls us to avoid these things, sometimes we think it's because they're dumb and silly and don't do anything. But I think sometimes, not always, but sometimes, God wants us to avoid them because they actually do work. There is a spiritual world around us beyond the physical. There is real palpable evil. These things do happen. God wants us to avoid them, not because they're harmless, but because they are actually harmful. And they put us in a realm that we don't want to be in. Spiritual warfare is real. Demons are real. That's why the whole armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6 is a thing that we desperately need. We need spiritual protection from a good God who loves us. So beyond all of that, the reason that we're not supposed to engage in these practices is because we have a God who speaks. He has spoken to us. He has revealed himself to us. We don't need to go looking to these practices to hear something, to get guidance. We have the guidance of Jesus. As Susan said, we have God's people gathered together in worship that help us understand God's word and his world we don't need to seek elsewhere. God wants us to know Him and to know all things through Him. So that's the context. Back to the story. We see that Samuel is dead, the mediums are gone, and now the Philistines are approaching. Look back in uh, verse 5 of our passage. It says that when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid. 
and his heart trembled greatly. At this point, we see similarities with David. Both of them have this great fear over their present circumstances. And what does Saul do with his fear? He turns to God. Look at verse 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Saul is met with the deafening silence of God. We've seen God use all these means to speak already in this book. God spoke to Samuel in a dream in chapter 3. The Urim, which is like a version of casting lots, is used in chapter 14 when Jonathan, Saul's son, was spared after Saul made that food vow. Uh, Samuel is present all throughout the book as a prophet speaking on behalf of God. But now, Samuel is dead. David has the Urim since Saul killed all the priests at Nob in chapter 22. And Saul has been repeatedly ignoring God's clear commands. The silence that Saul hears is the result of a heart hardened over time and unwilling to hear God. It's God giving Saul over to the desires of his heart like the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. This sort of silence is terrifying. And yet the solution is simple. Stop trying to hear from God just to get what you want, but seek God for himself Confess your sin, own it, repent of it, turn away from it, and cling to Christ. Stop seeking a special word from God when He's already revealed Himself clearly in His Word. Again, this is one of the reasons why we need each other. We need brothers and sisters both positively to show us what it looks like to live God's way in God's world, but we also need brothers and sisters to call us back. We read earlier in the call to confession from Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews is a book that talks a lot about the hardening of our hearts and walking away from faith. But it gives us this task as brothers and sisters in the church. It says, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, sin deceives us. We need others to point it out. Who do you know well enough that can exhort you about these things in your life? We must be building these gospel truth-telling relationships in our church. Jesus stands ready to forgive us. He's, He's ready to wash away all of the corrosive buildup of sin on our hearts. And it's never too late. It's always the right time. Before we move to our second point, I want to say one more thing about the silence of God. Saul experienced God's silence due due to his rebellion and lack of repentance. But that's not the only reason that God may be silent in our lives. You see, for Christians, the silence of God is not uncommon. Many of the most faithful Christians throughout history have experienced what might be called the dark night of the soul. 
a season where it feels like God is distant, where it seems like God is silent. In those moments, even when God feels far off, we're reminded in his word that he is still near. The prophet Elijah had a moment like that where he had a difficult time hearing from God. It didn't come through all the obvious ways. In 1 Kings 19, it says this, The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? You see, God didn't speak to Elijah in all of the, the loud and most obvious ways. He spoke in a whisper. Christian, if God seems silent, be patient. Keep listening. And tell him. Go to him with your doubts and worries about his silence. He will listen. Cling to, the, cling to his word and the promises he's given. Pray the Psalms that voice the whole range of emotion, including despair and loneliness, to God. He can handle it. When God is silent, don't be silent back to him. Run to him like David eventually did. When we're faced with the deafening silence of God, it can either drive us further into our rebellion we're to our knees in repentance and a reminder that we are totally reliant on God. That brings us to our second scene where we see a last-ditch effort. A last-ditch effort. In his desperation, Saul is going to go across enemy lines to sneak out to see a medium. This is the irrationality that fear causes. He's going to walk a 10K, 6.2 miles, where if they find him, he's a dead man, to try to go hear from another dead man. So he disguises himself, ironically stripping off his kingly garb, and he sets out on this journey, which is both literally and spiritually dark. When he gets there, he sees the woman. And in verse 8, uh, he says, Divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. But this woman is skeptical. She's afraid that it's a trap that someone from King Saul sent her to, to, so that she could be punished for practicing her witchcraft. So she says in verse 9, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? She's basically saying, I can neither confirm nor deny that I can talk to the dead, but I definitely don't want to go live with the dead. And yet, in another stunningly sad move, listen to what Saul does in verse 10. Verse 10, but Saul swore to her by Yahweh, that is the covenant name of the Lord, he swore to her by Yahweh, 
as Yahweh lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Before going further, I want to pause here and take a look at uh, what Saul just did. Saul is breaking the third commandment. The third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Think, if you're like me, typically when you think of this commandment, you think of using the name God or Jesus as a swear word. And that's true. That is taking the Lord's name in vain. That's very common. But what Saul is doing here is also important to consider. He invokes the personal name of God in service of something that God explicitly forbids. He's using God in a way that dishonors God. This is spiritual abuse and it's wicked. We see this in cult leaders who misuse spiritual authority to gain power for themselves. We see it in prosperity preachers who promise, if you give enough money to the ministry, then God will make you rich, all the while they're getting rich. But we even see it in our own hearts. Anytime we try to use God for our own ends, instead of wanting to know God, to get God. That's really the core issue with Saul that we see here, is that he didn't actually want God. He didn't actually want to hear from God because he loved God. He just cared about himself and what he wanted. So, a medium was the next best thing. And if he had to invoke God's name to make that happen, so be it. It's wicked, but it worked. Look in verse 11. She asks, whom shall I bring up for you? And he says, Samuel. And between the end of verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12, we don't know exactly what happens. Samuel appears, but was it the ghost of Samuel? Was it actual Samuel? Was it a demon posing as Samuel? Was the woman the one able to summon him? Or did God happen to do it? Let's look through uh, the details we find in these verses and try to figure out what we can make of this. In verse 12, it says that the woman saw Samuel, and then she cries out with a loud voice. And then she says, you tricked me, you are Saul. At this point, it seems like Saul isn't able to see whatever version of Samuel it is. So he asks her, tell me what you see. And she says, it's a God coming up out of the earth. Saul, uh, Saul asks, well, what does he look like? And she says, well, he's an old man uh, and he's, he's wrapped in a robe. And it says, with that description, Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. So what is going on here? Well, I talked with a friend who has actually had experiences with modern day uh, witch doctors in Africa. And he, <coughs> he said that this scene reads very much like those interactions with, <coughs> with demons. Saul comes to her with this idea already in, in his mind And she just gives him a few very generic details. He's old and he's wearing a robe. And then Saul fills in the rest. Oh, of course, it's Samuel. Uh, And demons, they're able to draw from existing knowledge. A lot of what Samuel says are things that we've already seen in past events. He's just 
mostly rehashing common knowledge. So whether that's what happened or not, we need to remember that spiritual warfare is a real thing. It shouldn't petrify us, but it should drive us to our knees in prayer and reliance on God. But another possibility is that it's a ghost of Samuel, and the medium actually summoned Samuel's ghost. And the reason she yells out is because she's surprised. She's not used to it actually working. Maybe that's the case. Or what I think is most likely, but again, I'm not certain, and that's okay, is that God brought Samuel back in a way similar to how he brings Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 8, uh, 17. We don't know, uh, but whatever the case may be, we need to walk away from this encounter knowing that spiritual warfare is real and that God is willing to use whatever he needs to get our attention. He has power over life and death, and he will use all things for his glory and our good. So whatever version of Samuel this is, he gives Saul a death sentence. And that's our third scene, a death sentence. And scenes three and four will be much quicker than scenes one and two. So in verse 15, we see that uh, Samuel's not impressed by Saul's bowing. He says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answers, I'm in great distress. The Philistines are warring against me. God's turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I should do. If you've, if you've ever had a situation where a kid tries to play mom against dad, where maybe dad says no to something, so they try to go to mom to get a different answer, but they're going to get the same answer from both parents, that's what's going on here. Samuel is like, you're not going to get an answer you like any better from me. Um, and that's what he says in verse 16. Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has, has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you do not obey the voice of the Lord and do not carry out his fierce wrath against, the, against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Basically, Saul is seeing the results of his constant rebellion and failure to turn back to God in repentance. And then Samuel gives him the death sentence in verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. That is, in the realm of the dead. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Instead of finding comfort for his fears... Saul is driven deeper into despair as his death draws near. We're reminded by this that our sin has consequences. Saul is reaping what he has sown. We're also reminded that our sin impacts those around us. Saul was supposed to rescue Israel from the Philistines, and now he is the reason that Israel is going to fall to the Philistines. His sons, including Jonathan, are going to die with him in the battle. We're left with the fearful truth that our sin will find us out 
that the Holy King of the universe will not be fooled. That brings us to our final scene, a dying king's last meal. All the best uh, TV shows and movies and books, when they get to the finale, they like, they, uh, they find a way to weave together all the loose threads from throughout and bring them to this resolution. In this chapter, we see in a very sad way that all the loose threads of Saul's life are coming together as his finale approaches. He's taken off all of his kingly attire that he never wanted in the first place. Uh, The Philistines are going to conquer Israel that he was supposed to uh, uh, rescue them from. He's hearing not from God, but from a medium. Samuel, who anointed Saul, is back, but this time, instead of anointing him, he's condemning him one final time. Samuel's robe is mentioned. If you remember the scene where Saul grabbed at Samuel's robe and tore it, and and Samuel said, in the same way the kingdom is going to be torn from you. The robe is mentioned in, in the description from the medium. And here we have Saul laid face down on the ground, utterly gutted, destroyed, exhausted, in part because he hadn't eaten, which is a reminder of his rash vow that he made that almost got Jonathan killed, where for some reason he said, let's not eat. He's not fasting to seek God. He's just doing things. And he's about to partake of a royal feast, but it's prepared to him by a medium. She has to beg him to eat it. So she makes this elaborate feast, and it really was a feast because in those days, anytime you had meat, it was a real uh, like celebration. And Saul is sitting there while she prepares this feast, just stewing and sulking and destroyed And in comparison to Abigail, a few chapters back, where this wise woman makes this glorious feast, Saul's meal is prepared by a woman whose occupation breaks the law of God. But even in that, we see common grace as this woman is extending kindness to the king. He eats the meal, he gets enough strength to take him to his final battle, which will be also his death. We'll talk about that next week. But we're left with this really sad and heartbreaking finale. It's, when I was thinking of finales, it's almost more like Seinfeld than anything else, where you have these self-absorbed characters all throughout, and then they finally get the results of their selfishness. So when that's our story, where do we find the hope? Where do we find the gospel in all of this? I just want to close with a few ways that we can see God's grace and the gospel. First, we see God's grace in that he calls us to repentance. Sometimes we think that a call to repentance comes from God's harshness or his severity. But scripture actually says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. 
Because the thing about our sin is that it actually destroys us and it destroys those around us. So a call to turn from it and turn to God is actually one of the most kind and gracious things there is. We also see the gift of Christian community that Saul was desperately lacking. Like we said before, this is a place where we can hear from God, where we can know how to live God's way in God's world, where we can be shaped by His Word, and also where we can help each other in those moments where we need the hard truth, the, the, the blows of a friend that are life-giving. We also see the gospel in the fact that darkness will eventually prove itself to be dark. Uh, it's actually a really good thing that God doesn't let injustice go unpunished. It means that the king of the universe is actually in control, and one day he will make all things good and right again. This is a hopeful thing. We see the gospel when we compare Saul with David, who eventually does seek after God for God's sake and finds rich, life-giving relationship and forgiveness. We see it in the fact that despite Israel's first king being an absolute failure, God's big plan is still moving forward. David will soon become king. And even though David's not perfect, he understood real repentance and is thus called a man after God's own heart. But finally, and most vividly, we see the gospel in the person and the work of Christ. Saul stripped himself of all of his kingly garb. He hid his glory to protect himself so that he could consult the powers of darkness. But Jesus, he also stripped himself of his kingly garb, taking on human flesh and becoming the servant of all. He hid his glory in humility, not to protect himself, but on his quest to defeat the powers of darkness so that Satan, sin, and death wouldn't have the final word. Jesus wasn't in self-protection mode. He did it as an act of self-sacrifice, where on the cross he took our place for our sins. Jesus entered the place of the dead, but he didn't stay there. He rose again. And now, great David's greater son, the true king that our hearts long for, is ruling and reigning over all things. He is good. His word is true. And knowing him is beautiful. So if you're here today and you've never known Jesus, you've never turned from your sin and embraced Jesus in the gospel, it's not too late. Today is the day. Even if you feel like Saul, it is not too late. If you're a Christian who knows Jesus, but you feel the corrosion of sin, the hardening of your heart, turn to Jesus. He forgives the Christian life is characterized by daily repentance, daily believing the gospel, daily communing with Christ. There may be stretches where God indeed seems silent, but in Christ, the whisper of God 
will prevail over the silence. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for your word, even when it's hard. I pray that your spirit would work it in us to root out any sin in our lives, draw us to you, help us to see you as truly good and beautiful. Give us the boldness to speak hard words of truth to each other when we need it, and give us the humility to receive those same words from each other and from you. And send us out knowing that you are a good and powerful God. Help us catch a glimpse so that we might worship you as you deserve. We pray this all in Jesus' name, by your Spirit. Amen.